Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoo-ah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Gabe S. Done. Hello and welcome to Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. I'm Gabe S. Dunn, your host. Our guest today is Malika Jabali. Malika, can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? Sure thing. I am the senior news and politics editor at Essence Magazine, and I'm also the author of a forthcoming book called It's Not You, It's Capitalism, why it's time to break up and how to move on. So it says in your bio that you were a policy attorney, just for my own like curiosity. What, what did you do in that capacity or what were you working on? I worked in a good amount of public policy for New York City Council. I literally was an attorney writing the laws for the city, one of the many attorneys that we have. So whenever you hear the word lawmaker. I'm like, no, that's really the attorneys who are making the laws. <laughs> we did the research. So <laughs> we just had, had to do a lot of research to make sure that the laws that council members had ideas about could actually be legal, um, that they wouldn't run afoul of the state constitution or the federal constitution or a Supreme U.S. Supreme Court cases and all those things. And so sometimes we got really vague ideas that we had to shape and like mm-hmm. actually make into a policy. Sometimes we had more thought out ones, but that was the essence of my job. And then we would put on public hearings so that the public can either scream at us about it or, you know, tell us that they support it. <laughs> wow. That's so funny. Just imagining like some senator coming up to you and being like, okay, so I had this idea, like maybe people shouldn't chew with their mouths open. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll... no. <laughs> I guess I'll make a law about that. Right. I don't want to I don't want to spill all the tea, but literally like we would have sometimes like ridiculous and not thought out laws. I'm like, do you have any idea like what the ramifications of this would be? But, you know, we're lawyers. We have to be careful with our words. It's like, well, we just want to point out we would like to wreck. We advise you, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so, my God. It's just like all the euphemisms like, dude, come on. What do you think? <laughs> oh, my God. I just saw like that would be really funny. OK, so the book is about it's it has capitalism in the title, but it's actually more about socialism. But let's start and say, like, what is capitalism and what are some ways in which it impacts like the average person's life? Yeah, I would say the a very simple way of describing it is an economic system where a small amount of people make the decisions and siphon the money away from a large amount of workers. And that decision making is is important because that affects what kinds of wages people get, that affects whether or not they have to work 50 hours a week or 20 hours a week. It affects whether or not they get benefits. It affects whether or not companies can decide to go overseas and exploit workers abroad with even lower pay. So that's the, that's the essence of it. And what are the, the people that love capitalism? What do they say? Oh, it's it's so good. Like, what are their reasons? And what and like, you know, why are they like so gung ho about it? I think it's a mix of things. I think some of the people who are all about capitalism are capitalists and they benefit from this system and they fight tooth and nail literally through wars, through invading other countries, through agreements Mm. and, and laws where they are able to extract resources from other communities and they benefit from those kinds of decisions and that kind of profit making model. And there are other people who think they're capitalists. I think most people in America would probably say, or at least, you know, maybe half of the country would say that they are capitalist because this is the system we live under. And we automatically think when we say, oh, I'm a capitalist, that means, oh, I would like to make money and I don't want to be poor. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of this book was to say, hey, this is actually what 
It is. It's a very discreet system. And this is what it does to us. And if you're not one of those big bosses who's exploiting workers, you probably don't want to align with a system that can chew you up and spit you out anytime it's ready. Even people who are doing relatively well in life, lawyers and doctors, Mm -hmm. doctors and lawyers complain about student loan debt all the time. That's a function of a capitalist system. It's so funny because I'm just thinking about people that at least that I've read about and encountered people like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, things like that. They talk about it almost as if it's tied to patriotism. Like, oh, yeah. Like, what is that? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's something else I get into the book. It's actually a whole I do a whole series of myths that we learn uh, being I think pawns in this system and we get, we get brainwashed. And so there were very discreet moments in history in America in particular, where capitalism was aligned with being against the authoritarianism of Germany and being against Hitler, being against democracy. And so we had laws that said, hey, this is actually un-American if you are communist or if you think of any other system. And they killed people if you aligned with it. Mm-hmm. So we got, you know, historically people got scared into saying, oh, OK, well, I guess I actually do prefer this system. Yeah. What is let's get into that. But like, what is the difference between socialism and communism? You know, I, I would like to be honest with you. I think I've got a high level, a high level, maybe academic take on it, okay. but I don't really know how it works in practice, you know? And so ultimately what you, what you would hear, you know, I think most people who are in this space say is that communism is ultimately a wageless, classless society. There are communists who I think would also be considered socialists. You know, a lot of socialists read communist manifesto and a lot of the tenets sound like they are just and another avenue to get to communism, Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, according to the Communist Manifesto. But under socialism, the rhetoric isn't necessarily to get rid of wages and to get rid of government and to get rid of the state. It is how can the state work for us? Mm. How can workers work together so that they're deciding their wages? I think under communism, you wouldn't have wages in the first place. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's interesting. I mean, they, they've all gotten tied together basically by a large PR machine who I think was like, OK, how do we make this untenable for people? You know, I think people forget like young people forget that, like there was a, a red scare. There was people blacklisted in Hollywood for being communist. I mean, there were, can you go into like communism starting in the U.S. or that kind of thing and like the the ways in which it was like spooked out of people? Yeah, you can look at the 1800s, well, really with the ascent of capitalism. And so you had European scholars who said, hey, this is the system that we're getting really industrialized. In the United States, you know, we still had a big slavery and planter system, but they were building factories and exploiting, you know, children for child labor. Mm -hmm. And people were like, you know what, this is probably not the best idea. (laughs) We're seeing a lot of pollution. You know, it's the beginning of when we start seeing this climate crisis because, it was rooted in, you know, coal and, and these activities that burn resources mm-hmm. that go into the air. So people are seeing this, seeing all this happening. And so with the rise of capitalism, you also had a rise of forces against an alternative to it. And so that spilled over to the United States where you see something like the Haymarket Affair, where people were ascribing to this kind of ideology And in Chicago, they had a really, it was a a labor dispute and the government shut it down. There was a bomb. You you could really compare it to a lot of the activity that we see today where there's some kind of rumbling and the state uses that as an excuse to go on the extreme Mm -hmm. and harm people and use really authoritarian tactics to silence that dissent. And so the Haymarket Square affair, that's precisely what happened. And so they used that as an opportunity to kill anarchists. Mm -hmm. They sentenced them to death. And the people who were on the jury were all white collar business leaders, just business owners. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of see us getting spooked out of it in these very early instances. And you can also say that abolition was a, it wasn't a directly, you know, communist or socialist affair, but 
it was rooted in anti-capitalism. So you had all of these workers who were standing up and saying, we don't want to be in this exploitative system anymore. Mm -hmm. And you have planters and you have these slave owners who are intent on stifling that dissent so they can keep their profits. So I think you could say that these are some of the the early elements of, of where we see this happening. And then obviously you have the Red Scare later on. So, you, you know, there were laws against even talking about communism mm-hmm. before the Red Scare. And then you, you know, fast forward and then you've got elected officials who are associating even national health care with communism and something scary back even back then, they were saying, you know, Harry Truman and an F- an FDR are anti-American for promoting these ideals. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com slash badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch Money. It is very stressful, confusing, and time-consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work. Like, you know, I was very committed to Mint and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances. You can collaborate on your budget. You can get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications and more. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now get an extended 30 day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y slash bad money for your extended 30-day free trial. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. 
it is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry. I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Okay, so it it comes down to starting with colonization, right? We come over to, let's just say America. We come over, we colonize the Native Americans, indigenous peoples who had their own way of doing things, their own systems in terms of exchanging labor for goods, things like that. We come in, we go, no, we got to do it this way. We decimate them. Then like coming up, obviously, then there's slavery where we're like, well, we're just making the most money and we're just doing what's best to keep the economy going. I remember a big, you know, argument in the Civil War is they would say, oh, well, it's not about slaves. It's about, you know, states being able to make their own rules. And it's also about like this. If we got rid of slavery, it would absolutely destroy the U.S. economy, which is what they say about healthcare now. Oh, if we, you know, nationalize healthcare, it's going to destroy an industry or whatever, which like now looking back, we can go, well, I mean, I don't know about some people nowadays, but we could go, obviously, slavery was exploitative and bad. But like, Back then, if it was so normalized, people were like, well, it would, you know, how would I run my farm? And it's like, I don't know, with people you're paying, what the fuck? But like, then you go into like, I was doing research for a show that I'm working on about anarchists in the 1910s, 1920s, and it becomes incredibly xenophobic then. It becomes, you know, it almost stays racial the whole time where it becomes like, oh, these people are coming, they're immigrants, the people that are anarchists and socialists and communists are Russian, they're they're immigrating, they're Jewish, they're from, you know, European countries that we are against and then bringing into like, you know, the Japanese internment camps and saying, oh, well, these people are coming from Japan, which is like, it's all, it's it's almost like been tied to like hating the other and then just like ascribing the word communist to them without, I think, even knowing what co- what like that even is. <laughs> Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, completely. And you saw this even amongst Black people who were born in the United States. So there was a, a tendency to say that Black people were either being swayed by these foreign forces or they themselves were not fully American. Yes. And, you know, there's this uh, a book that I highly recommend called Hammer and Hoe by Robin D.G. Kelly that looks at a communist movement in, I want to say, 1920s, 1930s, Alabama. And a lot of Black people ascribe to it because they said, oh, we're seeing what communists are talking about. They're talking about racial equality because if they're talking about equality, they're talking about it overall economically and racially and, and gender-wise and all of these things. And so they were aligned with that kind of system. and But you had uh, government players and just everyday white working class people and, and poor whites who said, oh, you guys are a part of the enemy because you want to undermine this system of segregation, this racial segregation mm-hmm. that we've had long established. And so Black people themselves became associated with being alien for believing in a system that would actually benefit them and everybody else. Exactly. I mean, look, we used to normalize child labor. Okay. And then a bunch of kids. We started to normalize it now, too. I know. <laughs> uh, they're just now the children of influencers. But we, we've, like, that was a thing where there was, like, you know, you look back now and it's, like, kids in the U.S. were dying in factory fires. And, like, everyone was just, like, yep, that's how you make stuff. Them's the break. <laughs> Like you can't, what? So like, we do. And so like things do change. Like people act like there's no possible way that you could like make things better. Even let's say, wow, we've kept capitalism under capitalism. Fine. Like there, there's, they act like there's no possible way to make changes and they don't ascribe these types of things like eliminating child labor in factories, let's say, or, you know, eliminating slavery. They like don't attribute that with socialist or communist ideals but it is something you're right that undermines capitalism. So, right. and that's comes down to like doing the right thing, <laughs> but they don't, they don't associate it with that. They do think that it is some sort of foreign force coming in. And like, I think that it's funny that we all of a sudden are back in a sort of like Russian scare, like that it just oh, came yeah, back totally. around. Like, 
Yeah, completely. I mean, and, and thinking about how a lot of these ideals are actually homegrown, one of the chapters I get into the popularity of socialism in Wisconsin. Really? So, so many, yeah, so many of our ideals for the New Deal came out of what's called the Wisconsin Wisconsin School. So we have, you know, the Chicago School, which was based on economists coming out of the University of Chicago who were very capitalist. But then if you go just a little bit farther north, I lived in Wisconsin and I was able to receive the benefits of this. They believed in having a, a stronger social welfare state. And those those ideals came from socialists who then served in different parts of the of the Roosevelt administration to bring us some of the things we have today, like workers' comp, social security, having like the workforce development, the work, the WPA. A lot of those came from socialists in Wisconsin. They hired, not hired, but they elected the first socialist mayor anywhere in the country. Wow. They elected the first Congress person who was socialist anywhere in the country. And they had a string of socialist mayors. And so they really believed in having a, a government that worked for the people, which, you know, is a step towards having, you know, a workplace democracy where workers are deciding these things directly. But at least the government is representative in some way, or at least theoretically, of what everyday people want. You know, it's, it's easier to vote than it is to, you know, get a million dollars and be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Know? So let's see how we can impact the system that way. And so I used to run along Wisconsin, you know, the trails and public parks in Milwaukee all the time. That came from socialist mayors. So we need to have green space. We don't need to use every single inch of, of land for development. Let's have it be used for the general public. So why, how did this happen that then it became kind of like, a joke socialism. I know like you mentioned like the Bernie bro of it all. And I I think like I remember being I lived in New York during Occupy Wall Street and the ways in which people I still I bristle today when someone's like, oh, Occupy Wall Street. Remember, they had no demands. I'm like, they did have demands. They absolutely <laughs> had demands. But there was like this narrative in the media of like they're disorganized. They don't know what they want. What they want isn't tenable. Like, you know, these and I wonder if it's just like a very effective smear campaign or or like what it is that is so funny about wanting a better world. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a tendency to connect socialists or leftists with hippies who do nothing and don't want to contribute to society and they're all lazy bums. Mm -hmm. But socialists are all kinds of things. Socialists have been professors. They've been doctors. They've been playwrights like Lorraine Hansberry. They've been organizers like Bayard Rustin. They've been union leaders like A. Philip Randolph. They look like all kinds of things, but I think it's just easy to dismiss it using, I think, the same kinds of tropes that we get for a lot of working class people or people who want to change the system, whether it's the welfare queen or or whomever, as long as it just keeps the capitalist engine running. Which, by the way, the welfare queen is a complete myth. It, there's they've long figured out that the person that they <laughs> they used as the example, it was it wasn't true. So, of course. Yep. So w when you are talking about like the other works that you've read about socialism, it is very white. So can you explain this work like specifically for, let's say for Black people specifically right now? Mm -hmm. I wanted to reframe what we think socialism is and who socialists are. And I think that's actually critical for people of color, because when you do have the stereotype that all socialists just descended from <laughs> Bernie Sanders's, you know, <laughs> like what? grasp. Yeah, <laughs> that he he created a hornet's nest of socialists and they all right. came to social media to yell at us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, to yell at us and tell us why we can't have like a woman president. It's like, no, we've, we've been here. Yeah. And so I wanted to reframe that, I think, for everybody. I think for Black people who I work with in community often who think they're capitalists because they don't want to be poor. And I also wanted to reframe that for the general public who thinks that, you, you have to look a certain way. And then they weaponize that to say, well, socialism isn't really going to resolve racism. Mm. You need to get with somebody who's more interested in race. 
But those things are so interconnected, you really cannot disconnect it. And so this book is a a fun way of us breaking up with a lot of the myths that we might have ourselves and getting other people to see that their partner is toxic or their (laughs) ex-partner is toxic and we shouldn't run back to them because, you know, they like to circle the block, especially during (laughs) cuffing season. (laughs) So we got to cut them loose. (laughs) You know, and so I, I... I start off with quotes. Uh, Every chapter begins with a quote from a real life socialist who is either a woman or a white woman or a woman of color or a man of color. And it features quotes from them in ways that relate to that chapter. So for instance, I really had fun with this chapter. I talk about Malcolm X who said that basically capitalists are bloodsuckers. Mm -hmm. And I use like a whole twilight metaphor to talk about (laughs) vampires and how the financial system, the financial services industry is a vampire that's sucking all of our blood and (laughs) Once the, they're just energy vampires that take everything from us. Uh, so yes, I just, I, I center them throughout the book. And I also have a chapter dedicated to the intersections of race and class in the very second chapter. Mm-hmm. And we kind of debated whether that should come after the socialism chapter. Essentially, I give like a 101 of capitalism, a 101 of socialism, and a 101 of race and class for the first three chapters. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really want this to come after capitalism so that it could be a very compelling case by the time we get to the socialism chapter to say, oh, yo, this thing is actually really messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, People are willing to maim and brand and kill people to uphold this system. And then we have a whole system of white supremacy and anti-Black racism that still affects us to this day built off of that system. Yeah. So that was really important to me to, to focus on that. I mean, yeah, we used to hang labor organizers. Like we're having a WGA and SAG strike right now. And like they don't understand that like. Not that long ago, we used to take labor organizers to the middle, to the square and hang them. So I, I, I do think, yeah, there's the intersection of race and class is so interesting to me because it is, it, it is such a obvious, it obviously points to the toxicity of the American dream. Like the idea that, you know, you're saying, well, I'm talking to these black people and they think that they're capitalists because they don't want to be poor. And it's this idea that if you believe in communism or socialism, you want everyone to be poor. You want bread lines. You want like people to be, you know, you want like, oh, people that say, oh, the NHS is is free health care. But you might have to wait three months to get a knee surgery that you could get really quickly here, like that sort of scare tactic. And so, like, I'm curious about that. Like, how do you it's so hard because you're sold to this thing of like getting out of your town or you know, how how do you do you address like this American dream thing that I think is very toxically sold to people of color specifically? Oh, yeah, complete. Oh, yes, completely. I reference it a lot sarcastically where, you know, I'll comment about something that is completely it, in theory, the antithesis of the American dream. But it's actually something that happens in America, right. you know, where we do have, you know, child labor that has existed here, that we do have the exploitation of, of black labor in the past and today and, and workers today. So I definitely tie that to the rhetoric around freedom and democracy, or even when you look at democracy and we, we talk about how free we are to vote, how we want to vote, yet so much influence is coming from billionaires who have increasingly decided who are going to be front runners in, in federal elections. Yeah, or the gerrymandering, like, oh, we're going to line off this district so that certain people of color are not voting in this election. Or, you know, I, I was just talking to someone where it was like, OK, so you you are like, well, black people can vote. And it's like, however, now felons can't vote. And also we're going to charge black people with more felonies. So ergo, actually, do you have the freedom to vote for who you want? No. Is there like, you know, there's this illusion of freedom. There's this illusion of democracy that like is actually not occurring. So. Right. And and I think we should also talk about the freedoms that we do have, you know, because obviously there are some differences and we can protest, unlike maybe in some other countries and express our First Amendment rights, relatively speaking, compared to maybe some other 
countries, but, but a lot of those freedoms came from socialists. A lot of those, those freedoms came from anarchists, <laughs> you know? Like I mentioned, the New Deal where we have workers' comp and we're not working as much and or down to the bone necessarily as, as much as we had to in the past came from socialists and came from a very discreet school of socialist thought mm-hmm. out of Wisconsin and some other, some other, you know, liberal bastions. So I, yes, I don't know if I directly answered your question. No, no, I, listen, I'm just (laughs) ranting at this point. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It is interesting that you bring up Malcolm X because I think one of the most insidious things that happens is people bringing up Martin Luther King as like, well, let's say white people bringing up Martin Luther King as some sort of respectability politics beacon bastion, even though we did kill him. So like, can you, you mentioned him in the pitch for your book, along with Dolores Huerta. So can you like, is it that people just don't remember that these people were socialists or where, what is the, when you looked into him particularly, like, mm-hmm. what did you find? Well, I don't know if he, if he used those words. Yeah. And I think especially a lot of black activists had to be careful of not associating with communism exactly. because their blackness was enough to send them to jail. But his rhetoric was entirely what you would associate mm-hmm. with with socialism, you know. And so he talked about capitalism no longer meeting the needs of the masses, that it no longer is reaching the people that it needs to reach. And there needs to be a revolution of our values in America. You know, these are things that that Martin said that, you know, socialists sound like that today. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fair to call him that a democratic socialist in in some way. And he talked about redistributing wealth. And so I think a lot of it is because we have not been educated on those things and we're not educated on those things for a reason, the same reason why we don't even, a lot of legislators don't want us to talk about slavery or racism at all today, Mm -hmm. let alone, you know, getting into Martin Luther King's specific history. We want to erase all and by we, I just, I mean, racist and, mm-hmm. and uh, powerful white people or, or white people who don't even, who may not even ascribe to racism, but they know that it works effectively in order to keep people divided. So it's just not taught. It's not taught. And the purpose of this book is to hopefully get it into some libraries. So some little teenagers or something will see how this history has shaped up or or hand out. For me, I had to go to get advanced studies in this in in undergrad in order to really make the connections. Because the we talk about it, but those connections aren't really made unless you are kind of intentional about studying it. Yeah. What did you end up studying? What did you figure out? I was an African American studies double major. So I, I majored in that and English and our very basic textbooks. There was a number of classes that really just the light bulb went off. One of them it was just a 101 class, and we just learned about the origins of slavery. And I want to say we learned about the Beacons Rebellion, either in that class or a history class, where you know we I could be it might have been Bacon's Rebellion. It's been it's been a million years no, since I've sure. been in undergrad. What's so wait, what's Bacon's Rebellion? So Bacon's Rebellion was essentially a it was it was problematic because it was but let me get with the the good the the lesson to learn from it is that white and black workers worked together because there was a a law in Virginia that was trying to undermine workers overall and what ended up happening is whiteness and race ended up being solidified because the powers that be recognized that you've got these working class people you've got these low-income people or or enslaved Africans working together across racial lines. So now we need to come up with laws to separate white workers and the white working class and the white poor from Black workers because they're coming together and they were coming together to, I think, defend some property against like Native Americans in, uh, in Virginia. But they were, regardless, they were coming together in ways that 
we were taught were not innate to humanity. You know, people across race are divided. How can they work together? Right. But they had. And so you had explicit laws that gave, that conferred benefits to this faction of white Americans and divided Black people and, and white folks so that they would see themselves as separate and Black people would get, you know, the, the shorter end of the stick, to put it mildly. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. What I've looked into in the early 1900s is women in particular who were involved in the anarchist and socialist and communist movements who not only were, you know, deported, seen as as European or Polish or Russian more so than American or Jewish more so than American, but also this idea that like women who were involved in this type of thing were masculine, lesbians, like which some of them were. But like I even had the wrong impression where before I had really started reading in depth about Emma Goldman, I was like, oh, she's a lesbian. And then as I read more about her, it was like she's not even she like barely she hooked up with like one woman, maybe. And she was like mostly obsessed with guys. And so like I think, you know, that's another sort of something that I had to unpack that was like a a smear campaign in in a funny way as a queer person to be like, you're a lesbian smear campaign. But at the time you could get arrested for that right. kind of thing. And so it's just kind of this like criminalization of blackness, of immigration, of being a woman who wasn't like work in her place. Does that make sense? Right. So like, yeah, what did yeah. you find in terms of women's involvement in these spaces? Well, I center a number of, of black women through it. And I will say that that's probably a a weakness of the of the book. I think it would have been great to I mean and also just time and and you know deadlines to get into just how feminism was connected to some of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I I want to say I quote the Combahee River Collective which was a group of black feminists who were also socialists. But I would have loved to explore gender a bit more. And I just, I just, you know, I really wanted to key it to what are some of the really pronounced issues and who are some of the socialists who've talked about those issues, you know? So healthcare is a very pronounced issue right now, obviously, and has been for a while. The, our loan system, our student debt crisis is a big, is a big issue. So if that couldn't quite fit into those, those categories, it was like, I, I don't really have a way of, of weaving it in like I want to, but I gave a lot of, you know, black women, socialists and other socialist women, you know, shout outs or, or mention them in some yeah. way. I wonder about like with, with healthcare, I wonder if like, there's something to the like nurses or the people that were caring for, you know, children or I don't know, like if there was something to seeing all of that, that maybe would put more women at the forefront. Like I know Dolores Huerta, like there was, it was like education and like things that I think there are so many elements of socialism that rather than just sort of the, the white Bernie bro entitled I don't know. Like there's there's so many little things that are, I think, a little bit more. I just am so worried about the ways that it's been presented. And if there's like ways to get out from under the like the like taint on the word or something. Well, I mean, I think that there's been a good amount of progress. And I think it also depends on what circles we're thinking about. Maybe yeah. in our lefty spaces. We there is a an assumption of that, but okay. if you look at, for instance, like an Axios poll that which I, I referenced in the book, over half of the respondents had a more positive uh, feeling and in, in relationship with the term socialism than capitalism. Yeah, you know, so it was a it was a majority of respondents, and so I think it's just going to be up to us to continue telling these stories and really offer the truth about what it looks like and who's been a part of it and to keep, you know, beating that drum because this is, it's histor- it's ahistorical to pin it to just these, you know, white privileged men who are, you know, specifically like a specific type of hipster. You yeah. know, it's all, <laughs> it's come from all kinds of places, you know, and I talk about liberation movements 
all over the globe that were centered in 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 breaking free of capitalism. I I quote Asada Shakur, who was a Black Panther, who said something along the lines of that there was not a single revolution in Africa that was not based in socialism. Wow. And so if you look at how many of those countries try to gain their independence or gain their independence from European colonizers, many of those leaders and what they were trying to transition into was a socialist government. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a country that you looked at that has been doing it well? Or is there a country that we could like model ourselves after? You know, it's it's kind of funny because I think there are actually a lot of models in the U.S. I think Wisconsin had some good ideas that we need to just keep keep moving forward with. We have some ideas that have grown root in the South, like the Jackson Plan. What's that? that? In, Jackson, in Jackson, Mississippi, it's a movement. And I was actually raised in this movement where there were a good amount of Black socialists who migrated from Detroit and they wanted to create a new government that was independent of the U.S. right here in the U.S. And they decided to relocate to Jackson, Mississippi, and they eventually wanted to have all of these states throughout the South because they knew that that's where Black people were most densely populated. And they came up with these tenets to that sounded like something that you would read from, you know, a communist constitution that, you know, every worker, you know, works like for the community, that the land is for the community. And I, I grew up in, in that, that movement. Oh. Um, so the Jackson plan was, was a document that came out of it for how to enhance that kind of economy and, and way of governing. I was a beneficiary of it through this organization called the Malcolm X grassroots movement. It's like, a, it's a whole history, but there are some I would say at least ideas that have been fomented in the United States. And in terms of seeing where it's been implemented in practice, you can just look at where socialists have had impact all over the globe. I lived, you know, and these aren't, these aren't socialist countries, but they do have socialist influence. They have socialist parties. They have socialist activists Mm -hmm. who create these laws. And so, you know, I lived in Europe for a, a brief time and in Spain, you have a healthcare system that is, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of the United States. And you can thank a lot of socialist, socialists, mm-hmm. I was going to say socialist ideas, but actual socialists for bringing that kind of healthcare system to us. Yeah. So it's, I would say that it, it's mostly in terms of how it's being implemented in in other societies. I think it has been really hard to have like a fully socialist country anywhere. I think the closest example or you know, could be Bolivia, but there, we still have to deal with a global economy that's capitalist. Yeah. We still have to deal with capitalists who have influence over our over militaries right. who try and overturn governments that are socialist. Yeah, one of our listeners that wrote in that question, the second part of the question was, or has the CIA not left any intact? <laughs> right. That's basically that's the answer. So too long didn't read. You can just fast forward to that answer right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I think when you're what you were talking about is is people living in this idea of the future. They would rather live in well, in the future, I might be rich or in the future, you know, I might be this rather than dealing with what is happening in the present, which is that they don't have access to the things they need. Yeah, I I agree with I agree with that. And I would also say that, you know, and maybe this is this is not how it should be framed, but I like to frame it as saying that we would all feel the benefits of wealth in this country if we were, if they were more equally distributed, you know, so rich in the terms of you're going to be a billionaire who got those billions by exploiting workers. No, but I do think with a system that's fully realized, you know, everybody would have housing and good housing. Everybody would have healthcare. To me, that is, that's living well, you know, that's having a rich life, being able to take time off or having a, a work week that didn't consume you constantly. I think that's a rich life. Yeah. 
I mean, it's I was just what made me think of the the gun control debate where it's the same people saying, well, I need to have my guns. And it's like, OK. And then it's like the real problem isn't guns. The problem is health is mental health. OK, the problem is mental health. So what should we do about that? Nothing <laughs> <laughs> like just pray. We're going to pray on it. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're going to pray on it. It is it is a toxic relationship. It is a toxic relationship with with like feeling like the promise of this man, capitalism, being better in the future rather than dealing with the existing situation, which is you're in survival mode. Exactly. And I proliferate those ideas throughout where we think that we're getting these benefits, you know, we're getting like the 401k. That's like the makeup gift. Those are the roses. You know, <laughs> we get, we get the cards This you know, with sweet nothings, you know, we get the credit cards, we have access to right. all of these things. But ultimately a lot of us aren't happy. A lot of us, you know, I talk to my friends constantly who did everything right. You know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, we got, went to good schools. We, stayed on the course through through all of our most of you know our academic lives and got good grades and we should be the poster children for what you can do in a meritocratic capitalist society but mm-hmm. so many of us are just struggling you know we're complaining constantly about how many hours we have to work and it, these aren't like little complaints it's like 12 hour 10 hour days that's not any fun and then you spend your weekend just trying to recover from the 10 to 12 hour days. And of course you got to look good. You got to work out. You got to take care of yourself and everyone's tired. I was just looking at things that my fans had written in and they were saying that, you know, it's a failure of the education system because people don't know the difference between capitalism, communism, socialism. And then this person mentioned also syndicalism, mutualism, mercantilism, which I've never even heard of those. (laughs) Did or do you, have you heard of those? Yes and no. Some of them, yes. I am a part of a social justice organization called Operation Power, and our leadership ascribes to socialist values. Mm -hmm. And we have reading groups where we have talked about mercantilism and we've required people to do presentations, you know, just kind of within our, our membership base where we have presentations with each other to just learn about these systems amongst each other. So even if you can't get it in a formal academic setting, there are definitely groups out there where you can debate and discuss it, you know, hopefully before the right wing gets to you, gets to your book club. You know, they shut down, they're trying to shut down on book clubs. So you got to find it real quick. And then that's get on Discord. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Did you, did you, how do you feel about the Communist Manifesto? Is how, did you, do you enjoy it? Do you think it's relevant? I think it's very relevant. I think it's, I think it's super relevant. I was first introduced to it in, in college and I really don't know what I thought about it then. I had a overall sense of justice and leaning towards economic and racial justice, but I don't remember what I thought about the Communist Manifesto, but I, re- I revisited it for this book. And there's so much that is still very relevant. I think in terms of even just figuring out what are some interim reforms that we can have. So I, they talk about taxing the rich, you know, and having these, these government programs for people. So I think it's very relevant. I also critique it using, you know, a lot of the theory of, of Black socialists and communists, W.E.B. Du Bois, for instance, who talks about the fact that it doesn't really address how the proletariat has also been divided based on race. And so there's this assumption that everyone will just see how much capitalism is failing us, and then we would just run towards another system. But that did not pan out in the U.S. And, and Du Bois called that out and he said, hey, we've got a proletariat here that actually gets material benefits from their race. You know, mm-hmm. they get material benefits from being categorized as white. And so it's not a clean cut. Hey, here's an elite. And then like, here's a proletariat. It's a little bit complicated, you know, yeah. like, like many relationships are. Yeah, that makes total sense. I was also thinking about, you know, the stuff that gets normalized, like, you know, when people didn't want to wear masks during the pandemic. And I saw uh, an old news story that was going around that was like when they introduced seatbelts, people were like freaking out, like, how dare you make me have a seatbelt? Like, this is against my freedoms, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like basically the exact same rhetoric as the, the mask conversation. 
And, you know, it's funny to be like, well, we can't have like government intervention and and socialism. And it's like, do you know a stop sign is socialism? Do you know <laughs> like that, you know, like they, there's just I feel like there's it, it is heartening to hear about the Axios study that people have a more positive association with it now. And I think that it, we do have to give sort of his Bernie Sanders his feathers there. Oh, yeah, I think. I think completely he popularized it. I think he made it, he demystified the idea. He was bold enough to talk about redistributing wealth. And he activated a lot of people who probably either were involved in other movements like Occupy Wall Street, or they're just like kind of stepping into their critiques of capitalism after the Great Recession and realizing that something isn't working right for them. So I do think that that was very important. But that momentum will easily be lost, especially since, you know, he is aligning with the the Democratic Party and the two party Mm -hmm. system. And so I think it's important for us to find these movements independently of political parties and to commune with other people who think in these ways to figure out how to navigate the system. And then I just want to go back to what you're saying about people thinking that seatbelts and stop and, you know, all these other things are authoritarian. So (laughs) your listeners won't be able to see, but (laughs) you can see it. We fashioned some of, I I poured through, I was a real nerd about this book, even though it's fun and it's cheeky and it's illustrated. I was a, 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 a policy nerd. And so I went through decades of public commentary Uh, through like people commenting on federal regulations just to see what people associated with communism. And so I'm just going to give you one example, but our our illustrator is brilliant. And so she designed it as if it were like a a Reddit forum or a Reddit page. And so they have all these like (laughs) these silly conservative usernames. And so somebody, this is a real actual comment that somebody sent into the federal government this is America, not communist Russia. We are supposed to have a choice in matters like this. I demand this opportunity. This is absolute, pure, and blatant discrimination. This comment came from a California resident writing to the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration in 1997 who wanted the freedom to not have an airbag in her car. There it is. <laughs> and that's it. So there are plenty of examples and I only I chose like three of them to show in the book where people are just, you know, just go, they get out of their minds thinking that everyone is trying to take their freedom for the slightest inconvenience without realizing that their freedoms already been taken. <laughs> listen. Listen, the real like the important freedoms. Like I don't, you know, I would like to have healthcare without huge medical debt. Without without huge debt and actually get taken care of. I'm going to incur that debt from not having an airbag, which I don't (laughs) want. And I'm an American. Okay. well, thank you so much. Where can people find you and your book and more about you? You can go to my website, MalaikaJabali.com. Should I spell it out? Yeah, spell it out. M is in Mary, A-L-A-I-K-A. J-A-B is in boy, A-L-I. It's just MalaikaJabali.com. And uh, you can find the book, which comes out on October 24th on Algonquin Books, anywhere where books are sold. But an easy way to get there is bit.ly. So, you know, the little bit.ly short Mm -hmm. URL and buy It's Not You, It's Capitalism. So B-U-Y, It's Not You, It's Capitalism. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bad With Money with Gabe Shane Dunn is a production of Noted Bisexual. Produced by Melissa D. Monts and Diamond M. Print Productions. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Coco Lorenz. And music by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen, as sung by Sam Barbera. Thank you, love you, bye! Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.